If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the 5th History Extra podcast for August 2012. Coming up this week, we have... But in a sense it stands at the threshold of a period which we're not out of yet, where wars are ever more wars against civilians. That was Professor Helen Graham on the Spanish Civil War. And I love the whole the sort of discovery, the strangeness of it. You expect to find ships, you know, under the, under the water. You don't expect to find them taken to pieces under the floor. And that was Sam Willis on a remarkable naval discovery. The History Extra podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. There are more details of our latest issue and subscription deals on our website, historyextra.com. We also have digital editions available for both the Kindle and the iPad. You can find our Kindle edition on the Amazon website and our iPad edition is on the Apple newsstand. Don't forget you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash historyextra, or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash history extra. Helen Graham is Professor of Modern European History at Royal Holloway, University of London. She's a leading expert on the Spanish Civil War, the conflict that rocked Spain from 1936 to 1939, 
and which launched General Franco into power there until his death 40 years later in 1975. Professor Graham has recently published The War in Its Shadow, Spain's Civil War in Europe's Long 20th Century, which explores the war's long-term consequences. The magazine's publisher, David Musgrove, caught up with Professor Graham to find out more, and to start, he asked her to sketch out the basic story of the conflict. I suppose it starts with the democratic experiment of the Second Republic in the 1930s. In 1931, you get, for the first time ever in Spain, a a genuinely parliamentary democratic regime, which is attempting to change things. Um, And in a sense, that is itself the product of social and economic change in Spain, a a radio-listening middle class that wants a voice in politics and also um, increasingly sort of the rural and urban poor or working classes want also a voice and a, a lot, some share of the cake. So it's about, in a sense, it's a, it's a levelling attempt, an attempt to introduce a, a democratic regime. In a Europe, of course, where uh, the storm clouds are gathering and, in a sense, if anything, the, 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 the sort of currents are running against democracy. Um, and in a sense, the Spanish Civil War comes from the um, the resistance, in a sense, to, to, to that levelling democratic attempt. Uh, it's an army, the, 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 in a sense, the attack, the assault on the Republic is, is, is led by, it's an army coup in July 1936, uh, but obviously it has a civilian base of support from, um, shall we say, uh, Spain's old elites, uh, landowning classes and, and uh, industrialists, other people who don't, don't really want social and political structures to change. Um, but really the possibility for blocking this levelling parliamentary attempt is effectively given by the, the fact of the, arm, the army being behind attempting to block it. Um, and really, in a sense, we talk about the Spanish Civil War, but effectively it is, to start with, it's a military coup launched against an incipient democratising government, right? And it, it, it basically is on, on course to fail. That military coup is on course to fail. The, the government and has the majority of the population. There's a huge sort of urban defence of the republic against the military coup. Um, they have industry, they have the gold reserves, they have, as I've said, most of the population. So it looks as if it's going to fail. It's gone off at half cock. Um, the, um, the, 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 the kind of the central sort of spearhead of the, of the coup attempt is the, is the Army of Africa, which is in Spanish North Africa, and they can't get to mainland Spain because the, the straits have been blocked by a military, uh, by, by a mutiny against the, the, the rebel commanders of the navy. So it looks as if it's going to fail. And it, in a sense, it's turned around from a failing military coup to the possibility of, of escalation of a war against the Republic by, by dint of intervention by Germany and Italy. So it is effectively Germany and Italy who provide aircraft to, to, to airlift the Army of Africa to mainland Spain that gives the military coup makers the possibility of escalating a failing, or in a sense turning around a failing coup, to make a war effort against democracy, if you like. So that's basically how it starts. Um, then, of course, 
it looks as if the Republic is going to go down because the coup itself has ca- has exploded the the Spanish army, um, so that they don't have very much by way of um, of, of resist formal resistance possibilities except the urban militia, which is fine, but not once the army of Af- a professional colonial army has landed in 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 Spain, courtesy of German and Italian aid. So basically, they they have to basically build an army in order to to fight what is rapidly becoming a conventional war effort. They are the Republic is further handicapped by a a big British decision to effectively stand back and not, not not obviously not no one was really looking nobody in Spain was in the Spanish Republican political class was looking for Britain to intervene but Britain actually made it worse than that because they actually in a sense engineered although it was the French who announced it but the British engineered a policy of non-intervention which was of dubious legal standing internationally, but which nevertheless most most of of, of the great powers and the world signed up to, and which basically meant that um, nobody was supposed to sell arms, private or states, was neither private individuals or companies or states were supposed to sell arms to either side in the Spanish Civil War. But as Germany and Italy, having signed up to non-intervention, freely intervened to provide um, endless amounts of, of, of war material for the rebels, it was effectively handicapping the Republic, and it would do so for the duration of the war. And it is, in a sense, it is non-intervention, even more than German and Italian military intervention. It is the effects of non-intervention which prevent the Republic from buying arms on the open market so they can't go and buy arms, at least not legally, in Poland or Czechoslovakia or Belgium. It, it, they have to kind of treat trade via third parties, brokers on the on, on what is effectively a large, becomes a large black market which bleeds the Republic dry but also makes it very difficult to get, um, to get weaponry. France has a kind of ambiguous attitude. Uh, it formally subscribes to non-intervention but because it's worried about being surrounded by fascist powers itself um, in Germany and Italy, it um, it has a kind of what's called relaxed on intervention. It keeps opening and shutting its frontier across the war to kind of let stuff in. So the Republic can kind of fight a defensive war, but it's never able to equip its reserve. It's never able to go substantially onto the offensive. And also, air power is all is all not always, but in what 90% of cases is with with the the rebel the rebel armies. So it's a very uneven it's an uneven fight, and it's largely uneven because of non intervention which is although um, ascribed to by France it is effectively a, you know it's a it's a British idea so the Republic was was never going to win then it was never, it never um, had the backing to it's it's hard to see how it could have won had it not been able to turn around non-intervention. I mean, obviously, historians don't deal in counterfactuals. It's quite hard enough to explain what did happen and why it happened without dealing in counterfactual universes. But certainly, with non-intervention, in, and in a sense, throughout the war, the, the, basically, the, certainly from midpoint of the war, the, the, the thrust of, of Republican diplomacy and policy under you know, the great Republican statement, statesman Juan Negrin is basically to try and get in non-intervention lifted, or at the very least by, shall we say, by the end of 1937, beginning of 1938, to get Britain and France, but predominantly Britain, to um, basically to intercede with, with Franco and to get a negotiated settlement, to get a peace with guarantees which will, at the very least, guarantee no reprisals against the Republican population. 
we ought to just introduce Franco. Um, so he's he's the leading yeah. figure in the, on the. Well, he becomes though. He isn't necessarily at the start. He's what uh, he's one of a number of military conspirators. But he has um, the great advantage of of military victories. He's the the leader of the Army of Africa, which is the professional fighting force and the reason why the Francoists have such tremendous victories at the beginning of the war. I mean, the other the, the director of the coup, General Moller, is stuck up in the north, not having great victories. But uh, Franco becomes this the the, the very carefully designed sort of early you know, PR machine also kind of positioning him very well but he also has other advantages, he's perhaps the leader that least divides the others um, uh, he's a kind of monarchist with no uh, political conservative but with very no st- strong factional sort of allegiances uh, and uh, but, 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 but the real reason that Franco kind of is, is, has the kudos he does is, is the, the military victories of the army of Africa Okay so just thinking about the, 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 the run of the war itself, it seems to me that it's um, a particularly violent conflict. Um, when you say that? Well, well, I mean, that's, that's my question. I mean, obviously it? it was very violent, but in a sense that part of writing the war in its shadow is to try and put that in a broader context. Uh, it was a very violent war, and it was a war that was violent against civilians, which yeah. is in a sense the, the, the key idea I'm trying to um, put on the table and explain. But in a sense, it stands at the threshold of a period which we're not out of yet, where wars are ever more wars against civilians. I mean, obviously, from the perspective of, of Great Britain, we tend to see the Second World War in a certain way. But for most of continental Europe, this was a war in which the people who really died in quantity were civilians. I mean, if you, I know an interview like this is not the place for loads of statistics, but, you know, by and large, it's, it's understood that the First World War saw of those who died, about 14.14% were civilians. Second World War, it's 67%. And in continental Europe, other than Germany, every country you care to name has more European war dead among its civilian population than it does amongst its military. So this is a war against civilians. Um, and and is, is the Spanish war the, and in the, the start of the assault? Well, in a sense, it is, I think it is. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, not a, a, it's quite a common idea to see the Spanish Civil War because of foreign intervention and especially you know, the bombing of Guernica, the clear kind of intervention of the great powers, um, Germany shaping up against the Soviet Union, which much later on, sort of when it's clear the Republic's going to go down if it doesn't get some assistance, gives a a very qualified, much more qualified assistance to the Republic than Germany and Italy gives to Francoists. But in a sense, there are all these these dimensions which a popular audience understands the Spanish Civil War, if it understands, if it it has any interest in the Spanish Civil War, understands its kind of prologue or antechamber to to the Second World War. But in, in a sense, the point of my book is to try and open that out a bit and to say, yes, it was, but it was in more ways than, than is commonly understood today, and it was predominantly because of this war against the, the notion that the real targets in these wars, uh, whether it's Spain or the European civil wars that happened under the carapace of Nazi expansionism between 1939 and just, just 1945, 47, that basically these are wars to determine what the, the, the look and shape of, of politics you know, political systems and societies across the European continent will look like. So it's a war where civilians are in the front line, not just because they happen to be under the bombs, and this is about you know new new technologies of war, but because it is actually about a war in which what civilians think and who they support and and how they are matters. I mean, you can say that you know in the shape of the 20th century is given by 
the unfinished business of the Great War of 1914-18, which saw a number of great empires and old orders crash, the Wilhelmine Empire, Austro-Hungary and so forth, but it left a lot of things still kind of in place. There was no, no clarity about what the shape of European society and politics would be like. Would it be the old pre-1914 order of quite rigid social hierarchies and where the political class was quite reduced in most countries, even nominally democratic ones? Or would, 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 would the order of society and, and, and pol politics change dramatically. And I suppose, the, the, in a sense, the eruption is because of the mass death in the Great War of 1914 to 18. A lot of people died, and, and those who came back, you know, ordinary soldiers demobilized across the continent, felt this gave them rights. It gave them a right to a political voice. So, in a sense, the, the battle lines are being drawn for how will societies look afterwards. And, in a sense, that unfinished business runs right through the interwar, and it's only really kind of um, divvied up as a result of the mass death of the Second World War. Um, so, you, you get a, cl a clarity out of the, the huge amount of of civilian death after the Second World War um, about what societies will look like. So, so it's a war in which civilians are at the heart of it. Right? And so civilians in the Spanish Civil War, you, you, you're saying they were targeted and they were targeted mm. for ideological reasons because they weren't thinking the right things. Or, or yeah, well in a sense that's, that's happening everywhere but obviously in a sense that every, there would be no war without the military coup. And then when the people who made the, the, the army officers who made the military coup had this clearly in mind, and we know that, that they had it in clearly in mind to um, use the coup to spread terror, to liquidate or cow or terrorise and silence those who didn't fit, who didn't think like they wanted, uh, or didn't seem to fit in the idea of Spain that they wanted. Um, and we know this because they, you know, they say it in the secret orders that Moller, the, 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 the director of the coup, General Moller, uh, in April 1936 and in a number of other um, orders that uh, come later, just basically says this, you know, we have to spread the, you know, we have, we have to spread the maximum of terror. But in a sense, the, 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 the exterminatory dimension of it, which is also what neighbours are delivering on, on, you know, actually imposing on neighbours, it's not just the military who do, do it, it the, the military coup also um, has, um, mobilises paramilitary support, so um, people who are believing that you know the Spain of hierarchy and of um, you know kind of rural values and of religion is a better way to go forward than something else, something more heterogeneous, something more modern. Um, will line up to try and sort of deal with their neighbours who they see as the face of you know of this this threatening change. Because there's a lot of fear around. It's fear that's in a sense the great mobilising force. But um, but yes, it, 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 we say ideology, but it's ideology that runs right through to a, a kind of social war. You know that it's. Um, compatriots doing it to compatriots because the army, just to take an example of this, as the army of Africa lands in the south and sweeps up through Spain en route to Madrid, it kills, you know, thousands of people as it passes through the, the villages and towns, but it leaves behind um, local conservative sort of committees which, uh, you know, are committees of landowners, of members of the Catholic and conservative parties, who then oversee a second level of cleansing and they do use the word cleansing, limpieza and it is this notion that if you can only remove irritants so everything will be well. 
violence is about cleansing. Violent, I mean, you can find shades of the notion of cleansing violence in the Republican uh, discourse and in what people are doing and how they're justifying what they're doing. You can find that. But of course, there was no army behind it in the Republican zone. It was kind of scatter, scatter shot, if you like. Whereas there's an army behind this strategy and it's coordinated and it's about engineering a different kind of population. Um, social cleansing. Uh, and so in a sense the violence is much more efficient and thoroughgoing in, in, in the zones that are controlled by the, the army. So that, that, that idea of, um, you know, you, you're talking about social cleansing, I mean that, that's a it's a, it's a phrase that's similar to ethnic cleansing. Yeah, well. yeah. well, of course, it's, it doesn't have an, a, a, a strictly, literally ethnic dimension. No, but but it's, have, it, it makes one think of, of, of modern times, yeah. you know, with that sort of yeah, phrase. Yeah, yeah. Um, but well, I suppose but the, the war against civilians is, if you like, a def, you know, by definition, is a modern, yeah. it's modern times. You know. Well, I suppose the interesting thing about the war, or one of the many interesting things about the war, is, is the long shadow it's cast, which mm. I, I assume yeah, yeah. you, but it relates yeah, to the yeah. fact that it's it's... It's, it's impacted on Spanish life and society um, ever since in a, in a way that other countries you know, have come to terms more readily with, mm. with events of, of this period. Ah, but other companies, sorry, countries, didn't have a 40-year dictatorship. No. Because in a sense, this is, the point about this is, why is the war so toxic and why is it so undiffused, yeah. the, the memory so of it? Why, why, why well, because of the 40-year dictatorship, because effectively yeah, the, the, the war... So Franco, yeah, the Franco regime uh, basically legitimised itself through a, a very tendentious reading of what that war had been about. And then, i.e., it, it was a war of the, the good and the morally, um, sort of the, the morally superior against barbarism, Bolshevism, uncivilization and so on and so forth. And it never devi deviated from that narrative. And it, much worse than that, in the 1940s, after the war, rather than saying, like, there's been a civil war, now we have to get on with it, it basically mobilizes a huge base of perpetrators to basically carry on executing and imprisoning the Republican population. It creates a kind of basis of legitimacy for itself by encouraging ordinary ordinary Spaniards, like ordinary Germans, to denounce Republicans, to denounce those um, who are on the defeated side. So there's a huge system of military trials in the 1940s, huge number of ongoing executions and imprisoned people serve long jail sentences or are, if you like, surveilled within society. It's, in a sense, the war does not end with the end of the military conflict. It goes on, right? And it goes on so, in a sense, that Franco can construct basis for the regime, for his own power base, for the, 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 the coalition's power base, but also in a sense it's part of this national sculpting as well. It's, it's, it's not, it doesn't end on the first, how could it end on the 1st of April 1939 when the military conflict ends? Because th that's the point at which a large area of Spain falls into, 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 for the first time ever, falls into Franco's hands. So all that's gone on in the other parts of Spain during the military conflict then has to be replicated in the large area of Spain which has been Republican right up until 1939. So right, the war, in a sense, there's a state of war in Spain until 1948. Those who are deemed to be political opponents of the regime, of whom there are tens of thousands who are brought before these, these military courts, this goes on right until the 1960s. It's, it's the 60s before civilian tribunals overtake the number of opponents of the regime to overtake the, the number they're dealing with over military tribunals. So, in a sense, Spain's at war, you know, the regime is based on this notion of 
I mean, and this is what makes it very like Hitler and, and, and Stalin. How would you define those regimes? They're regimes that go to war against a proportion of their own population. And that's exactly what Franco did, with one difference. He was never defeated. Just to wrap up, the, um, so from what you're saying, clearly this episode of history is still very live in Spain. It's still a point of debate. So um, it's, a, it's a silly phrase to use, but is there any closure on this story? happening or happening anytime soon well obviously garcon was a the baltazar garcon the the magistrate who the judge the spanish judge who who attempted to um to open up um through a legal case this uh the question of the the disappeared the the unnamed dead that that is to say the those who were killed extrajudicially by the franco regime and was um, has been stopped from doing that. So, in a sense, um, only time will tell. I mean, there is still a lot of ci- civic society, the, 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 the civic memory movement, which are, is a movement of, of volunteers in Spain, which has a lot of support from outside, from young people in many European countries who go and dig in the excavations. Um, that will still go on. And Spain is uh, obviously a democracy, and that cannot be stopped in the way in which the, 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 the judge was stopped. Uh, but, I mean, only time will tell. I mean, I think the f- it's not it's never going back in the closet because the, the one thing that exists in Spain, which in a sense the Franco regime set out to stop, is, is basically a, a civil a civic society. There is public space for these things to happen in and that's always good. So um, I, I think it has to be kind of promising, but it's not easy. And it's not easy because what's, ma- what's made it possible, which in a sense was the end of the Cold War, has also given rise to all sorts of counter-discourses of rehabilitating conservative nationalisms and therefore saying that Franco is a good thing and we don't want any of this memory and this memory is problematic. Um, so it's, it's kind of contested territory. And they, they are, the, the, the memory wars, as they're called in Spain, are very um, explosive. But I think the fact that it's out in the open now and these things are happening has, has got to be the road to closure. Because that's the point. I mean, what the, the, the kind of standard argument um, used by people who, who they ten, tended to be political conservatives didn't want any of this talked about at all. Franco, um, Franco had died, the regime was dead, there was a constitutional regime created in Spain, beginning of the 1980s, by, by the beginning of the 1980s properly. Um, but we don't want to revisit any of these things because it is ripping open old wounds. But if I can use an, a, a kind of a, continue the metaphor, it, it's not ripping open anything that wasn't festering underneath and wasn't poisoned. The only way in which you can get to the point at which these people ostensibly want to get to is by going through these things, opening everything up. No one ever died from knowledge, uh, and then knowing what happened and facing it is a thing is, is what a mature political democracy does and it, it must know what happened to all its citizens living and dead and then people can go forward but you don't go by forward you don't go forward by just bottling it all up and saying you can't talk about what happened to you or we don't want we don't care about what happened to your grandfather you can't do that you have to talk about these things We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Professor Helen Graham of Royal Holloway, University of London. Her book, The War and Its Shadow, Spain's Civil War in Europe's Long 20th Century, is published now by Sussex Academic Press. Before the next interview, here's a quick reminder about a couple of lectures we're putting on at the British Academy in London over the next couple of months. On Thursday, the 20th of September, Tracy Borman and Mark Morris will be discussing the Norman Conquest. Then, on Thursday, the 18th of October... Lawrence Rees and Ashley Jackson will be considering two Second World War leaders, Hitler and Churchill. On both occasions, you'll have the chance to meet the distinguished speakers afterwards and to purchase signed copies of their books. Now, tickets are still available for both of these talks. Go to historyextra.com forward slash lectures for more details of both and to buy tickets. And if you're a subscriber to the magazine, you'll save £5 on the ticket price. Archaeologists have described it as the single most important warship discovery in northern Europe since that of the Mary Rose. A couple of weeks ago it was announced that timbers discovered under the floor at the wheelwright shop at the historic dockyard Chatham belonged to HMS Namur, an 18th century fighting ship that saw service in some of Britain's major engagements of the era. I interviewed naval historian Sam Willis shortly afterwards to find out about the significance of the find. And I began by asking him how the discovery came about. While you're listening to this interview, you can also view a slideshow of images of the ship's remains at historyextra.com forward slash Namor. Well, it was back in 1995, and they were doing an archaeological excavation of the wheelwright's shop. And um, the ground floor, there, there was layers upon layers of timber over this floor. There were seven different different timber layers. And they gradually kind of peeled them off, and none of them were very interesting, until they got right down to the bottom, underneath almost a metre of, of, of these different timber timber floors, where they found found these ship's timbers, and they were so obviously ship's timbers because of the distinctive wine glass shape of the hull, um, that distinctive shape of a sailing warship's hull. So they knew pretty immediately it was going to be quite an exciting discovery. Um, and ever since then, they've, they've spent um, almost a decade um, really kind of doing a, a sort of a major detective investigation to try and find out what this, this extraordinary ship was. And how did they discover what ship it was in the end? Well, there were various clues. Um, The first was that uh, enough of the ship's timbers survived for them to realise that it came from a second rate. 
they also knew from marks on the timbers that they discovered that the ship was built at Chatham. And some of those builders' marks uh, were actually the same as the ones on HMS Victory. So we've got the same carpenters working on, on, on this ship as well, which was very exciting, a very interesting sort of personal link between the Victory and this, this other, other unidentified ship. So they knew that this second-rate ship was built at Chatham, and it was clearly uh, dismantled, broken up at Chatham, which were two uh, very, very important clues. Now, there was also uh, an interesting clue to do with that they're being put into the wheelwright's shop uh, a workshop where they were found at some point after that workshop was originally constructed in the 1780s uh, and they know from documentary evidence that the wheelwright's shop was significantly altered with building works in the 1830s so they were looking for a second-rate ship that was built at Chatham that might have been broken up sometime around the 1830s. Um, and there was one more very distinctive feature of these timbers, and they were to do with a, a Chatham shipwright called Robert Seppings, who was trying to redesign the bows of the ship um, in, in, in the early 19th century. And some of these timbers, although most of them were from the 1750s, were very obviously to do with Seppings' round bow invention. So they knew that it was a second rate, that it, it might have been altered by Seppings, that it was built at Chatham, that it was broken up at Chatham, and that at some point after the 1780s, possibly around the 1830s, it was put into the wheelwright's shop. And by narrowing it down again and again and again, there was only one ship that fit the bill, and that was HMS Namur. So what do we know about this ship, the Namur? Well, she was built in the 1750s, which is just before the outbreak of the Seven Years' War, um, the first sort of really global war where the Royal Navy was fighting um, fighting all over the place. And she had a, a very varied and very interesting career, um, both because of what she did and, and also because of who she was associated with. Um, her... her battle honours, I suppose, really begin in 1758, at the capture of the Louisbourg Fortress um, in Nova Scotia, which opened up Canada to attack, and um, subsequently Quebec fell uh, with the death of, of James Wolfe, in that very famous action at the Heights of Abraham. Um, thereafter, France decided to throw everything into an invasion of England um, to, to secure England as a, as a, as a bargaining piece to uh, um, negotiate a, a more advantageous peace for them. What they had to do first, though, was unite their Mediterranean and their Brest fleet, and the British were doing their utmost to stop them doing this. Um, in the first battle, the Battle of Lagos, Edward Boscoen uh, attacked and, and destroyed and captured several ships from the French fleet and the Namur was a was was his flagship at that battle and then at the battle of Quiberon Bay the British attacked and defeated many ships of the Brest uh, the Brest fleet, Brest fleet which was going to be escorting the French invasion um, army across the channel so two really important battles there which really swung um, the the momentum of the seven years war dramatically towards England um, Spain then entered the war, and the British struck hard and early against the Spanish by attacking Havana, which was their, their jewel in the Caribbean. And the Namur played uh, an important role in, in that amphibious operation. 
in the in the next war, the War of American Independence, she she had an important job to to play um, in the relief of Gibraltar. Um, so Gibraltar was being besieged by the Spanish, who were using the the American War of Independence to to attack the British almost while their backs were turned. And that says, I think, a great deal about the variety of sea power that the navy was doing at the time. So yes, they were fighting battles against the French and involved in amphibious operations, but there was also this this role of 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 ensuring and supplying in, uh, the the British army in Gibraltar. Uh, then at the Battle of the Saints, towards the end of the American War, the Namur had a, another important role, um, a, a very important battle which broke French sea power um, towards the end of the American Revolution. Um, then in the next war, the French Revolutionary War, she fought at the Battle of St. Vincent um, when John Jarvis was the British Admiral and Nelson made, made, a, made a name for himself by capturing two Spanish ships, one from the other. Um, she then fought again at um, Strachan's action, which is that battle just after Trafalgar, where Strachan uh, mopped up the remaining, the remaining uh, French ships who'd managed to escape from the destruction at Trafalgar. So there are a whole host of, of, of extraordinary battles in which then Namur took part, in which really paints an, a, a very vivid picture of the growth and development of British sea power between the Seven Years' War and, and the defeat of Napoleon. I mean, it seems like it had, had a really full history, this ship. Was it common for a ship of that period to participate in so many different engagements? Well, it's an interesting question because battles were actually incredibly rare. Um, and every now and again you get a ship, um, the Bellerophon is a very well-known one, who had a very long career um, and and fought in numerous numerous battles. But to have one that fought in such a variety of battles, I think, um, and having such, such a significant period, um, career over such a, a long period of time is very rare indeed. Um, and it's the it's the, the sort of the shape of it, the the strength of British sea power in in the in the 1750s and the Seven Years' War. And then she experienced a big dip during the American Revolution when the British sea power at the beginning of the war really was was, was not able to cope. With the challenge of American war, and then she witnessed the the sort of the explosion of British sea power in the 1790s, um, where where uh, regular um, victories against the French, against the Spanish, against the Dutch um, ensured that Britain could strangle the Napoleonic war machine. And am I right that some quite interesting people from other spheres served on this ship, including apparently Jane Austen's brother? Towards the end of her career, um, Napoleon was very Strong um, in in the Low Countries, and he he moved the, uh, the the focus of his maritime strategy away from uh, attacking the British from the west to to threatening her from the east. And we needed um, significant guard ships to protect um, the the, the centres of British power on the east coast. And the Namur then played a role as one of those guard ships, and uh, her captain. Um, at the time was Charles Austin, who was the younger, youngest um, of, of the Austin siblings, so Jane Austin's younger brother. And he'd had a, a, an interesting career in the Navy, and he, he reached the rank of Rear Admiral. His brother, Francis Austin, was also um, a, a very important naval officer who became an Admiral. And um, a, a lot of the, the Jane Austen's book books um, feature feature the Navy throughout them, and she drew inspiration from her brother's. Another interesting character who, who we know was on the Namur and who fought at the Battle of Lagos was someone called Equiano. Now, he was a slave. Slavery is an interesting subject to do with the Navy, and it's not one we, we know a great deal about. We know that slaves were 
kept on board British ships, but we don't know how many of them. Very often they were um, somehow disguised in the muster books or pay books. But Equiano is an example. We know he was a slave. He was owned by the ship's fourth lieutenant and he served aboard as a powder monkey, um, which was one of the, the, a very dangerous job carrying powder from the magazine to the gun crews. And it was usually carried out by children. Now, Equiano um, went on to have an extraordinary career once he'd left the Navy, um, and he eventually wrote a, a, a narrative of his life. And in doing so, he, he, he invented an entire genre of literary fiction, the slave narrative, and his was the first, the fir the first of them all. Um, he was a talented wordsmith. He was very good at observing life. And so uh, from his books, we have a, a very vivid description of what it was like to be in a battle and what it was like to be a powder monkey, what it was like to be a slave on a British warship an absolutely fascinating character do we know how the timbers from the ship ended up in the location where they were discovered yes and no the the timbers uh, one of the, the sort of the unsolved mysteries of it which which i, th I think is fantastic is why all of those timbers were there you see it's n they are not all doing a structural job at supporting a floor but only some of them are, are running the full width of the floor and actually supporting it as, as as floor beams essentially but in between those structural pieces have been placed um other timbers from the ship, um, knees and things like that, these sort of very distinctive, strange, curved shapes of timber have been laid flat, very sort of beautifully all laid out together. So we've got some sh some timbers doing a structural job and some timbers not doing a structural job. And um, that is, is, a, is a very interesting question. One possible answer is that the captain superintendent of Chatham Dockyard in the 1830s, when this ship was broken up, was a chap called James Alexander Gordon. And we know that he served aboard the Namur when he was a, a very, very young young boy, um, when he was about 12. It was his first ship. He was a young midshipman, and he was serving aboard the Namur. Now, at this period when these ships were being broken up, the 1830s, Turner is painting his very famous painting, The Fighting Temeraire, of the sun setting on the great wooden walls of the Age of Sail. And it's possible, I think, to, to think of these timbers at Chatham in, in, the same, in, the, in the same way. Possibly that the Namurs come into this dockyard to be broken up. James Gordon has said, that was the first ship I went on. I'm going to make sure that it's done with a measure of dignity, that she's not literally torn to pieces. And essentially, he's, he's almost laying her to rest, keeping her all together. How important a discovery would you say this was? Well, it's it, it's without doubt a, a new national treasure. Um, it was described at the time as a, as the most important disc, um, discovery since that of the Mary Rose. And I, I think it, it it's it's important because it says so much about Chatham. It says it shows so much about British sea power as well. So we've got the sea power of her career, but it it tells us about Chatham as a dockyard, an important. Uh, industrial machine that built all these amazing ships but also as a as an industrial center that was crucial in, in breaking them up that was crucial in ending this period of british sea power when steam was coming in when iron construction was coming in so it says a great deal about the 1830s as well as it does about the, the sort of the height of british sea power in the 18th century and chatham are going to use this uh, this extraordinary collection of timbers as the center of um, a, a, a big new exhibition, a big new entry point for the dock.
dockyard and they'll be they've received development funding to, to kind of um to develop the idea and to progress it further so hopefully there'll be a, a new heritage lottery funded development of chatham with these these extraordinary timbers at their center and i love the whole the sort of discovery the strangeness of it you expect to find ships you know under the under the water you don't expect to find them taken to pieces under the floor yeah, that is fascinating. It really is. Do you think there's anything more they can tell us? Is there any more research we can do on these timbers? Um, yes, we. I, I think we'll be able to f- find out uh, more about them. They're, I mean, they've got um, the, the timbers are in wonderful condition. Um, so there's bits of paint on them. There are hammock rails attached to them. There are more makers' marks that we can investigate. And oh, another of the questions is, is, where's the rest of it? We've got a little bit of the bow section of the ship and a substantial amount but a lot of it is also missing now it's possible and i think likely that the whole ship was 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 kept together and in modern development of the site the the rest of those timbers have been lost so i think there's more of a picture to try and find out why this bit has survived where the rest of it might be what the big story is here um and certainly we'll be able to look into the the life of the warship in greater depth now we know where to focus we can go and look at her logs we can go and look at her pay books we can go and look at her muster books we can find out exactly what was she doing we can take take apart the, the nitty-gritty of life and we can really really build up a picture of, of of what is essentially a new national treasure that was dr sam willis sam's latest book is the glorious first of june fleet battle in the reign of terror which is part of his hearts of oak trilogy the book was published last year by Quirkus. And if you'd like to hear more of Sam, check out his lecture on the Royal Navy that we broadcast on this podcast a few weeks ago on the 9th of August. And that's about all for this week's episode. We shall return next week when we'll be discussing the Wars of the Roses and the Second World War battle for Madagascar. And in the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, galleries, quizzes and more. Plus, don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple Newsstand, respectively. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.